This is the Music Vibes Podcast, sponsored by Neat 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 Records and Music, located at 1836 South Calhoun Street in downtown Fort Wayne. Neat 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 stocks LPs and CDs across all genres and is an authorized dealer of Ortofone, Audio Technica, Emotiva, Wharfdale, Project, and more. Please visit neatneatneatrecords.com for more information. Glad everyone could join me here this week on the podcast. Before we get started for this week's edition, quick announcement here regarding Record Store Day, which is coming up Saturday, April 13th. And if you guys are planning on making a visit out to your local record store, if you guys are in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I got the place where you should be. There's only one place to go. That is Neat 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 Records and Music. Saturday, April 13th is the place to be. I'll be out there for a little while, hosting a little bit, having a little fun, listening to some music. There's going to be bands all the way from 11 a.m. all the way to 9 p.m. A great list of local bands coming out. James and the Drifters, who I just interviewed a couple weeks ago to kind of intro back into the 2019 season of the Music Vibes podcast. James and the Drifters joined me a couple weeks ago. They will be the headliners. They will be performing at 9 p.m., but there's bands all the way from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. There's also going to be... Bravas, which is one of our local fantastic restaurants that we have here, will be there to fill our bellies. Also, anyone wants to get their drink on, Upland Brewing Company will be out there serving tastings from 3 p.m to 5 p.m. and a lot of surprises in store as well obviously this includes some of the hundreds of exclusive releases that'll be limited supply there's also a cash bar available as well that'll be available all night as well but again neat 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 records and music is located at 1836 south calhoun street here in Wayne, indiana join me out for record store day saturday april 13th but let's go ahead and get into it all right so on this week's edition of the podcast we are talking about the song walk this way Now, this is a song that obviously originates from Aerosmith back in 1975 from their album Toys in the Attic. Let's go ahead and hear a little bit of that. Some people may know the song as it was redone in 1986 as Aerosmith collabed with a hip hop group, up and coming rap group and run DMC. Let's hear a little bit of that and how different it sounds. This was the first song that kind of made rap and hip hop and the whole culture cool. This is the beginning of seeing, you know, Kendrick Lamar, who was running Grammys today. Uh, we're seeing Cardi B win Grammys. I mean, this was the birth of that. And Run DMC is known as one of the pioneers. And this song, Walk This Way, is one of those reasons. And I'm going to be joined by Jeff Edgers from the Washington Post. He has a fantastic book who he sent me this a couple weeks ago. And I got to read it in its entirety. Fantastic book. And he talks about how the song Walk This Way changed American music forever now obviously in the 80s this is something very different this was not done before you know a rock group and a hip-hop rap group coming together to make a song together we've heard a lot since then you know the jay-z with lincoln park song we've heard it a lot since this but this was the first one so my first thoughts are man i can't imagine how these guys acted and how they felt you know coming together and i just wondered 
you know, how it worked. You know, how did these guys feel about working together? Well, luckily, Jeff Edgers licensed some audio from some audio that was pulled from MTV and Viacom back when both Run DMC and Aerosmith were in the studio. Let's go ahead and hear a snippet of this. Now, the full audio is up at Esquire.com, but here's a little snippet of the audio of Aerosmith and Run DMC being asked what they think of each other, basically, and the song Walk This Way. We was rhyming. We <laughs> <laughs> was scheming. And I, got, I, call, I guess I called up for a run. And I was rhyming. <laughs> he asked Joe and I to come down and do a cameo thing on the, for Walk This Way. And we said, show enough. And I gladly. Yeah. I get a phone call. And, because know. we always dig. Dig the record, you know what I mean? Back in the day. We played it all our life, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So back in the day, we used to rock off to just the, the beginning part. Jay used to scratch it. Isk, at, uh, 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 at. Isk, at, uh, uh, at. No, just da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
fantastic book, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song Walk This Way that changed American music forever. And Jeff Edgers is from the Washington Post, and he is joining us here. Important. One thing it's important to tell these people, there's a, there's another book called Walk This Way by Aerosmith, mm-hmm. which was their, like, sort of uh, authorized, by, you know, autobiography, but this is not that. Mine is distinctive because it has a picture of Run DMC and Aerosmith on the cover, and they're very different books. In fact, there's material uh, covering the same stuff in both books that is actually reported differently because I found that not everything was exactly right, you know? Mm. I wanted to start off, too, because in in the introduction, you talked a lot about, you know, kind of what preceded this kind of collab here that we had with Run DMC and Aerosmith. So kind of catch us up here. I mean, Aerosmith had that little downtime in their career. I know they got pretty heavy in the drugs and were struggling for a while. Run DMC was starting to break off into the scene. But kind of give us a synopsis on obviously what you talked in this book, but just kind of preview this collab here with Aerosmith and Run DMC. Well, the fake story or the myth is that Aerosmith was this giant rock band that kind of launched Run DMC. What really happened is that you had Aerosmith, which had been huge in the 70s. And when I say huge, I mean there was no band that was bigger. They were playing massive arenas. They were playing like the Texas Jam with 78,000 people in it. Mm -hmm. But in 1979, Joe Perry, the guitarist, and Steven Tyler, the singer, their disputes and tension in the band got so strong that Joe Perry quit, which is like Keith Richards leaving the Stones or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, when that happens, they both go into this downward spiral, and uh, for uh, several years, they're not really doing very well. I mean, Aerosmith put out a record, didn't do very well. Joe Perry put out some sort of solo records that did uh, increasingly worse. And then they got back together in 1984, and put out a comeback record the next year called Done With Mirrors, but it didn't succeed. Uh, it was seen as a failure. And, um, you know, by this point, like, hair metal had started to, to come up, and Aerosmith was kind of seen as, like, washed up and done. Um, and so that's what happens when they step into the studio in 1986 with Run DMC. And Run DMC, um, they were easily the only superstar rap group. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were the fat boys, you know, but <laughs> they were in Houdini, but they were the greatest, like, superstar rap group at the time, which is still not like being rock superstars at the time, because weirdly enough, uh, rap was not played on regular radio. I mean, it was, like, mm-hmm. played late at night or it was played on college radio. Uh, you know, th- it was not part of our culture in the way that we know it is now, where, you know, Hip hop is everywhere. It's part of our clothing. It's part of. Uh, it's part of. I mean, Kendrick, you know, winning the Pulitzer. I mean, it, yeah. it's just. It's everything. Back then, uh, it wasn't part of the mainstream. So even though Run DMC, you know, they were heroes and superstars, they still weren't as big as like Aha or Starship. They were still not going to be treated that way. So that's what brings them together in that moment. And they both need something from each other. And, you know, the last piece I should just say is that it might seem normal today when everybody works with everybody else and celebrities go on carpool karaoke and Paul McCartney and Kanye record a song. But back then, there was no precedent for, for two very different kinds of musical groups to get together 
and work on something together. It just didn't exist. You can jog your memory, yeah. and you won't find it. So that that's what leads us to that moment, March of 1986. You know, when you talked about this in your introduction, because this, this is my first thoughts. Um, I'm a big hip-hop guy, and obviously I love my classic music. Otherwise, I wouldn't have this podcast. But um, my first thoughts were like, I wonder what the vibes were like in the studio, like when, when these guys meet. And you did talk a little bit how uh, Run, who is obviously – probably the most known i guess to this day out of this group and then dmc i don't even know the word i'm trying to describe but they they gave uh they were cool they, they didn't they were they were not they were too cool treating each other like they were great admirers you know what i mean yeah. they were treating each other with you know i don't know if it was like a little bit of envy or even just kind of you know not really recognizing who the other side was wow uh which you know for run dmc they didn't really know Aerosmith, or if they knew him, they didn't really respect him. But Aerosmith really didn't know Run DMC, so it wasn't like you had two giant superstars coming together and like gingerly trying to do things, you know, in a polite way. You basically had Aerosmith coming in. They're paid, you know, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler were paid eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars to come into the studio, and then Run DMC coming in and Run and D being quite, you know, sort of disrespectful, like sitting there eating their Big Macs and not really being into it. Mm-hmm. Jam Master Jay, who was a much more serious figure, mm-hmm. he did take it seriously. I mean, he was sitting at the board and, like, trying to figure out how to make this work. If I'm just being honest here, that's what I picture. It's it's honestly good that Jam Master Jay was, because you have to have at least one of them that has some kind of respect, because Aerosmith, I mean, and God rest his soul, Jam Master Jay, who unfortunately passed away back in, like, 2002, but um, it's, it's good that at least he was level-headed and knew and respected Aerosmith, but, um, and you even mentioned this, which I thought was kind of funny, but you said, I don't, I don't know if this was a direct quote, but uh, you said, as if one of them was saying it, yeah, just give me track four off Toys in the Attic. Well, they didn't. They say. I mean, Daryl's very, very uh, specific about this. You know, and and Grandmaster Flash told me. I mean, I, it's fascinating to me because I'm not a musical, like I'm not a DJ. And mm-hmm. he told me that they would go into the record stores and and he would pick up a record, put it up to the light, and he would see how shallow the grooves were to determine whether it would be a good good record to sample off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, not sample to work on a turntable and. You know, the fact is, the beat for Walk This Way, the very distinctive thing, boom, 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 that thing, that was used in, uh, I found, if you go on YouTube, you can find a clip of Grandmaster Flash using that Mm -hmm. as far back as 1978. The difference is, uh, if you were a DJ and it got to the guitar, you were already not great, but if you got to the... The, the vocals, you were terrible. And so the, the, the beauty of that beat, or Billy Squire's The Big Beat, is that you just used the beat. You had you know two records on turntables, and you just went back and forth. So if you're a good DJ and you use that beat, and it's, and it's a big beat, you, you scratch out the name on the record, or you black out the name on the record. So what everybody seemed to know that as was Toys in the Attic number four, not Walk This Way. And, you know, when Rick Rubin walked into the studio that day and Run and D were messing around with that record, uh, they didn't seem to know. He's like, oh, that's Aerosmith. And they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, this is Toys in the Attic number four. No, no, that's Aerosmith. That's like the big, I love those guys when I was in high school. So, you know, that's the kind of conversation that takes place there, which is, you know, I got this footage that I mentioned in the book. Uh-huh. 
20 minutes in the studio that day that nobody ever saw. MTV shot it and then put it in their vaults. But you watch Jam Master Jay over his turntables with Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, and he's showing them how he goes back and forth between Walk This Way's intro to the other record and then back to the other record. And I don't know if it's computing at the moment, but I'm watching it. And what he's basically showing them is like, when your song gets to the words, your song means nothing to me. Like, I don't care about it anymore. The only thing I care about is this beat. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, um, yeah amazing. And, yeah, and you, you did talk about that in the book as well, as you mentioned the footage that you got from Viacom. And another thing I wanted to bring up, too, I think I seen this, too, a couple years ago, where LL Cool J tried to, I guess, repair uh, the kind of tension between Run and, and bringing them together for the Raising Hell tour just a couple years ago. I mean, that's news, I guess. I mean, I had no idea that occurred until I talked to LL Cool J. And basically, he tried to do what you would do. I mean, mm-hmm. Raising Hell was one of the great records of all time. Mm-hmm. And all these other groups go out and commemorate their great records, whether it's Pavement or the Zombies or, you know, or Cheap Trek or mm-hmm. anyone, you know. They go out and they play the record through. And um, what he wanted to do is just simply have Run and D do a Raising Hell anniversary tour. Because um, Run and, 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 and DMC do, they do occasional concerts, mm-hmm. but they have their real hard feelings there. I mean, Daryl basically feels like he was abandoned by Run mm-hmm. when he was struggling, and he was struggling with drinking, he was struggling with depression, he was struggling with money, and Run, at that point, in his words, basically made a solo record. And listening to LL, you know, explain, you know, he says, you know, your ego is not your amigo. He went to such great lengths to try to bring them together. I mean, mm-hmm. as far as, like, he was going to open for them, and we know whether you like LL Cool J as much as Run DMC, we just we do know that he's a bigger commercial star now. Uh, but he was going to open for them out of respect. He was the money was going to be split equal, and it just got to a point where they just he, he tried every which way he could, but it just couldn't work out. And that tells you a lot about how how deep seated that tension is. The reason why we're talking about this song in particular today and this book is because this this did open a lot of doors. Whether people liked this song or not, we, this may not be our favorite song from either Aerosmith or Run DMC, but it still opened doors for people, even LL Cool J, who in the future, didn't he do a song with the Chili Peppers, Flea and Chad Smith, I believe? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, I'd, I'd even go as far as to say Walk This Way isn't the best song on Raising Hell. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> but My Adidas, It's Tricky, those are better songs. And I'd say that Sucker MCs or yeah. uh, even like King of Rock maybe, you know, those, those are, I like those songs better. But I do like Walk This Way, but it's not, it's certainly not Run DMC's greatest song, but it's, it's, most, it's their most important song. It changed things. It really did. People read me that title of the book and they, they're like, they act like it's hyperbole or like I'm just going too far. And I'm not. <laughs> I mean... Like you're being controversial. You, I can tell you in 30 seconds. Can I do that in 30 seconds? Can you? Uh, that, that is a challenge. I'm open. 30 seconds. Before Walk This Way, there was no Yo! MTV Raps. There was no Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. There was no In Living Color. There was no Arsenio. In 1985, Run DMC proposed going on David Letterman, and they were told that they didn't fit the format. In 1989, Paul Schaefer did his first uh, single off his solo record, and the singers on that song performing included Carole King, Dion, and Will Smith. Mm -hmm. So 
there you go. That's 30 seconds, right? That is that a decent argument? That, that is pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Just stop. Just now stopping the uh, stop clock here. So, yeah, 30 seconds. Good stuff. And, yeah, I was um, the, re- the reason I did bring that up, too, is because even on Toys in the Attic, I mean, you brought up uh, on Toys in the Attic. My favorite is probably either Sweet Emotion. You can give me Toys in the Attic. You can give me a big 10 inch record. I mean, pick one so yeah but this this did open doors even for guys like jay-z who we look at today as one of the biggest obviously he did one uh with lincoln park numb encore so this really opened doors for a lot of people snoop dogg did one with rage rage against the machine did a couple i think they did one with cypress hill Blink Limp biscuit did one with method man so yeah this opened doors for so many people i mean the other question is that whole generation of 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 Super groups that came out afterward, mm-hmm. and you know, Public Enemy, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, even the Beastie Boys. I mean, yep. these groups that came out, there wasn't a model for successful management in in the rap world, and there wasn't a model for mainstream success. You had groups that were like tragic failures, like the tra- Treacherous Three mm-hmm. or the Cold Crush, because they had no one handling them. And you know, the question is. We would have had the amazing music, you know, that Fife and Q-Tip came up with for Tribe, but would we have had that swing of records that were as successful as they were, right? I I don't know the answer to that, but it feels like Run-DMC's breakthrough really helped. I mean, there was a lot of terrible stuff that, I mean, Limp Biscuit, right? Vanilla Ice. I mean, there were things, the Fat Boys with Chubby Checker, there was some (laughs) terrible stuff that occurred after that record because people were trying to replicate it. But that doesn't mean that you throw out all the, you know, all the good that came with it. Absolutely. Yeah, there was, there was some hit and misses. Um, But yeah, just kind of, and I'm glad you mentioned this too. I think you went a little bit into this earlier when you mentioned uh, Houdini and the Fat Boys who were big around this time when Walk This Way was recorded. But someone's story that you think has been overlooked and forgotten and that is the story of larry smith kind of go into that a little bit yeah i mean it's been really sad i don't tell it in a way that's like pleasant because larry smith's story is ultimately a tragedy but his son wrote me recently because i sent him the book and he was really appreciative he said he had to put it down a few times because it is unpleasant but basically larry smith is the guy who you know rick rubin comes out in 1986 and does raising hell and he's put on the cover of village voice and uh he's called the king of rap but the fact is, Run DMC had put out two other records before that that were produced by somebody else, Larry Smith. Mm-hmm. And uh, Larry Smith also produced the Houdini records. He produced the Fat Boys. In a space of like two years, he's basically like the Phil Spector of hip-hop. He's got like five platinum records or something like that. And uh, yet no one knows who he is. And that's because Larry Smith, for whatever reason, was kind of pushed out or moved aside and he also hated sampling, and he also had a terrible drug problem. And so by, like, 1987, he's gone. But he did some amazing things. I mean, the thing that he did with Sucker MCs is he created the beat with Russell Simmons that became, like, a primary stripped-down beat of hip-hop. Uh, you know, people don't really realize it now because, you know, we think of Rapper's Delight as kind of a fun song. And, yeah. you know, the reality is the thing that, that Larry Smith did and Rick Rubin really strove for, you know, Rick Rubin called himself a reducer, not a producer. It was um, understanding what this music could be. When it first came out, rap was being produced by, uh, like, sort of slick, 
uh, urban music executives. And what they would do is they'd go to a club and get a rapper, and then they would put, like, disco music on the background. So if you listen to Rapper's Delight, mm-hmm. we all like that for its nostalgic value. I don't really love that song anymore, to be honest, but... Yeah, a little overplayed. It, it has value. I understand it, but you have Sheik's music playing over it. You know, that's basically what's going on there. What, what Larry Smith did on Sucker MCs is you have something completely different, a totally stripped-down version of what's being done in a club that's really, like, heavily dependent on the MCs and that beat. And uh, that was revolutionary. You know, he put electric guitar onto, onto Run DMC's music with, with Rockbox, on their first record, and it drove them crazy. I mean, they like didn't understand it at first. Yeah. But that, you know, Daryl says that that is more revolutionary than what happened with Walk This Way. I, you know, I don't know if that's true, and there's a difference. I mean, yeah. Walk This Way had the two actual guys collaborating with Run DMC. Mm-hmm. But putting a guitar on Rockbox, Eddie Martinez's like sort of heavy metal guitar, or putting it on King of Rock, those were like really dramatic decisions. And then you listen to Houdini, and it's a totally different sounding group. I mean, Larry Smith really had range. He just didn't care to be the king of rap or the king of rock or anything. He was just a guy who liked making music. Yeah, which is which is rare to find, especially in this business, even today. I mean, probably especially today uh, in today's world of music. Yeah, I wanted to mention that because I, I do agree that, you know, it is unfortunate to bring the story up, but it's definitely overlooked and forgotten. You know, everyone talks about Run DMC and their kind of preface to this uh, recording of this song. But I, I wanted to go back to Aerosmith a little bit. Um, we kind of talked a little bit about, you know, them coming into this, you know, recording of walk this way but uh let's kind of dig into the story of done with mirrors now they tried to come back uh, in 85 with this album that i honestly thought was pretty good all right i i thought i have the record at home on vinyl i think it's pretty good actually in my opinion i love shame on you i like uh let the music do the talking there's a few songs on there i actually like i saw aerosmith when i was 13 years old in 1984 on the back in the saddle tour yeah. at the worcester centrum and i bought done with mirrors and I was 14 years old. I was I did not care about the Billboard charts. Right. I wasn't like trying to figure out where they fit in musically. I got that record because I liked Aerosmith, mm-hmm. and I hadn't been given any Aerosmith in years. And that record stood up for me. My fist, your face. I like that record. Mm-hmm. I like. I actually liked that record a lot more than I liked Permanent Vacation, mm-hmm. which was their proper comeback, which I felt like was too slick. But that doesn't mean it succeeded. I mean, it didn't sell. And they were seen as washed up when that didn't sell as well as it was supposed to. But, but I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Why do you think? I mean, was it just the drug problems? Why do you think they were just so, I mean, were they past their prime? What was their biggest issue? Why they couldn't break through? Well, I think that John Kalodner, who was the A&R legend who had signed them to Geffen Records, mm-hmm. he just felt like there wasn't really a single on that record. You know, things can happen things go well or go badly based on anything. I mean, there's no way of really knowing. But I can tell you from the reporting on that Done With Mirrors, I mean, it was not done in a in a smooth environment. I mean, they everything on paper seemed to make sense. You had the band coming back, Joe Perry and the group. They had songs that they'd written. And then they hired Ted Templeman, who was the guy who produced and found Van Halen. And had just come off Van Halen's 1984. I mean, you couldn't find a hotter producer than Ted Templeman. But when I talked to Ted Templeman, he admitted, one, he was not at his peak. He was also kind of drugged out. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, he was a little bit in awe of Aerosmith to the point that it didn't sound like he was willing to kind of push them around and tell them what to do. I mean, Jack Douglas, who was their producer in the 70s on their greatest records, mm-hmm. 
he described putting together an Aerosmith record as like stitching together random parts because they wouldn't come into the studio with like a fully formed series of songs. I don't think Ted Templeman knew how to do that. And also Jack Douglas, he wasn't scared of telling the band that he wanted to do something they didn't want to do. Like early on on Get Your Wings, he brought in two other guitarists to play many of the Aerosmith parts because he didn't think that Joe Perry and Brad Whitford at that moment were good enough, though they got much better. And they ended up, you know, in the future, they would be the guitar heroes we, we think of. So a lot of things went wrong with Done With Mirrors. And, you know, ultimately it still sold like 500,000 copies, but mm-hmm. in that day and age, that was a failure for Aerosmith. They had sold millions of records. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's nowhere near their stature and what they're capable of. So, yeah, it's just weird how it didn't because I love that record. It's obviously doesn't stack. Like you said, it it doesn't stack against, you know, some of the older stuff. It doesn't stack against Toys in the Attic. You know, it doesn't it doesn't stack up against uh, the night in the ruts. It doesn't stack up against Rock in a Hard Place. Um, you know, it doesn't stack up against those. But I was just curious because I personally love it. Um, but just kind of going back to recapping everything that you kind of gathered in with this book. You mentioned you've talked to a lot of people briefly talk about some of the people you've talked to, what you talked to them about in order to get this great book out that we have today. Well, I mean, I obviously talked to all of the principal figures. Mm-hmm. I talked to everybody in Aerosmith multiple times. I talked to Ron and Daryl uh, multiple times. I sat with Ron in his mansion and showed him this video of that session <laughs> so that he could, like, r- jog his memory and remember it because they were young guys then. Mm-hmm. I talked to all the managers, you know. I talked to the people who collaborated. I talked to people, you know, Russell Simmons. I talked to people who, who were playing, you know, a- an instrument in a session. Uh, you know, I feel like Jimmy Crespo and Rick Dufay, the guitarists who came into Aerosmith for six years, basically, mm-hmm. while Perry was gone and Whitford left. Those guys were also important figures because that band was operating at that time. But then I also talked to really, you know, MC Chirac from the Funky Four Plus One. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to her because her style and her approach was very dynamic. I talked to um, Chris Stein from Blondie because he was part of the New York scene that, that you know, sort of brought together black and white and had, had these different genres. I mean, the Funky Four Plus One were on Saturday Night Live in, like, 1981 because Blondie was playing on that show and loved them and brought them on. So, you know, I, I, I tried to talk to anyone and everyone I could. I talked to probably more than 80 people. Uh, you know, I talked to multiple DJs from MT, you know, VJs from MTV. I just felt like the key to doing a book like this is you need to get the direct information directly from the source. And if you, if you don't do that, you're not doing your job. And I only, it's a gift to be able to tell this story. I mean, yeah. this is, uh, as you know, this is music we both love, yes. and to be able to get paid to like learn about it and understand where it came from, it's. I mean, I'm I'm the luckiest person in the world, so I'm not going to throw away that opportunity by not doing the work. Absolutely, that's exactly how I feel about this podcast. When you get paid to do something you love, even learn more about it, I mean, that's a win-win situation. You're so, lucky. <laughs> I love it, man. So, um, I learned <laughs> learned a lot today too, because you had you had so much information in this book that I just had no clue. So, if anybody needs to purchase this book, you can see it in the description. Just scroll on down. I got the link for you to go purchase this book. Because I have a weakness for unnecessary promotional items, uh, <laughs> if you, if you buy the book. Uh, and you said, I'm on Facebook. You can find my email real easy because I'm at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. It's Jeff with a G, uh, G-E-O-F-F dot E-D-G-E-R-S at washpost.com. Just write me. Send me a picture of the book when you get it. I made buttons 
of the cover, and I'll just send them out to you for free, even though uh, what I didn't figure out until later is that it cost me like $3 to send them. But I don't care. <laughs> I just want people to read that thing because, you know, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, get it Yeah, get it out there for sure. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you this, too. So obviously, other than the obvious of making it interesting to have rock and hip-hop collaborations with Walk This Way, how else, in your opinion, just kind of, you know, summarizing everything all together, how else do you think it changed American music forever? Well, it's not, I mean, it's even like, it, people say it's hyperbole, but that's even limiting what it did. Yeah. I mean, my Adidas was the first example of, uh, you know, fashion, you know, the million dollar contract that Run DMC sold to, you know, made with Adidas mm-hmm. was the example of fashion and hip hop coming together for the first time. And all those other things I mentioned to you, like In Living Color, Arsenio, those are television shows. Yep. So to me, what it did is it, it told these people who are in control of everything, because ultimately, uh, you know, the color they care about is green. And once they knew that they were going to make money off this, what they had considered to be like a small subculture, once they realized it was going to be something they could make money off, they were willing to pop it into the mainstream. And then people like me, suburban white kids, were going to be exposed to this music, which was vital. And, you know, we could say it today. I mean, it's like it is the it's the key cultural language that we have, you know, mm-hmm. it's the people that are making a difference and say, you know, and I'm an old man, so I'm partial to Tribe Called Quest, but when Tribe <laughs> Called Quest came back for that last record mm-hmm. and they played on Saturday Night Live after the last presidential election, I don't know anything that's more relevant than that. Mm-hmm. It feels more visceral and more alive. And, and that was the lesson that Run DMC taught us. So before I let you go, I got I to gotta ask you this as well. So I got, I got your nice little bio in front of me. So I want to know, you have some um, acting history? Is, is that true? Sort of. I mean, I made, a, <laughs> I made it with a friend of mine. I made this crazy movie about the kinks, trying to reunite them. Uh-huh. Now, like a while ago, it's like 2010. <laughs> and then that led to me doing an entire season of hosting and um, uh, writing a, a, a series for the Travel Channel. And then I did... Um, a series for the American Heroes channel, kind of like on museums and things. Yeah. And then uh, last year, I did a uh, season-long uh, podcast called Edge um, Edge of Fame, mm. which was, they were documentary-style profiles of figures that I thought were interesting. Everyone from David Letterman to Ava DuVernay to Jimmy Kimmel to Weird Al to Norm MacDonald. Um, to Billy Joe Shaver, as you can tell, I'm very partial toward music and comedians, but Ava is just like a leader unto herself. And you can find those on uh, on iTunes. I, and we collaborated with the Washington Post and WBUR, the NPR outlet. And I, I love that because while this, what we're doing here is special and enjoyable, mm-hmm. I don't hear a lot of podcasts that are like, basically like short films where you, you know, you don't know you're in different scenes in different places yeah. with these figures and you don't know what could happen. So that, you know, so I've done all that stuff. I just, I love storytelling. I mean, it's like, it's so much fun. He has a little TV history. So I got a movie star, a uh, journalist, a uh, fantastic author. Um, I mean, what, 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 what else do we got here? You got children's books too. What, what, you got some children's yeah, books? Yeah, I've done children's books on the Beatles, on Elvis wow. Presley, on Stan Lee. And uh, Julia Child that I wrote with my wife. Yeah, look, you know what? I I, I like, and I'm not a star, so like I feel like you gotta you try to connect with people in any way you can. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just as satisfying 
you know, when I write a story on, I, I've got a big profile of Roseanne Barr that just popped online today for the Washington Post. Hmm. You know, it's satisfying to have people reading that. It's satisfying to have people tell me, oh, I didn't know anything about the Beatles until I read your, 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 you know, my kid read your children's book and told me that Ringo was in the hospital for a year when he was a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's all part of, this is the stuff we care about. So like, we want to like push it on people. Right. And it's really hard with music. I'm sure you've had this experience. Mm -hmm. Try showing a kid like a song and they're like, oh yeah, that's, you know, like, (laughs) <laughs> people don't really always connect to the music until they have the story. Yeah. And so that I feel like that's my job, you know? Yeah, I have two kids. One, my daughter who is five, my son is seven, and my daughter is way more into the music than he is. So I, I might have to... Same with it. me. I mean, my, my son is, is, is more into playing music than my daughter is but she still likes music but you give me i'll send your kids those children's books they need to read them you know yeah i'd love that especially the beatles they're starting to they're starting to dig into it so yeah absolutely man jeff edgers from the washington post joining us here on the podcast today fantastic stuff man i have to bring you on again all right keep in touch anytime anytime and you've got you've got some great people on 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 hold there i mean danny goldberg that book that he did is uh uh i just read it it's really good Absolutely love it. Yeah, Brian Hyatt. Brian uh, too. I've got all those books. When you posted that, I, I, I was like, "Oh, we're we're doing we're reading the same thing." <laughs> yeah, that that pretty that sums up what we both been up to in the last couple of weeks here. But yeah, thank you thank you for joining me, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, and I look forward to talking again sometime. Be sure to keep up with the Music Vibes podcast with DC Hendrix, presented by Neat 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 Records, by subscribing on everywhere podcasts are available. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Radio Public, everywhere podcasts are available. Make us one of your favorites by subscribing, and make sure to leave us a review and let me know what you guys are thinking of the Music Vibes podcast. That'll do it for this week, and until next week, everybody, be sure to spread some peace and love. Podcasts by Federated Media. Podcasts by Federated Media.